Hi, Wednesday nights. Some fun, familiar faces. I heard y'all were a little bit feisty. Is that true? A little lively. That's the report I've heard. Okay. Okay. So if, did everyone get a handout, a study guide? Anybody need one? If you do, keep your hands up and the ladies will come through. I want to, while they're doing that, tell you that I have put on the back side of your handout a scripture reference because we're going to fly through the word and there's way too much to write. And I don't want you ladies to get bogged down writing scripture reference after scripture reference. So it's already there for you. Okay, because we're going we're gonna to fly tonight. So, okay, let's get started. Today, we will attempt to discuss a crucial and foundational topic of our faith, the supremacy of Christ. Disclaimers, I am not a theologian by any stretch of the imagination at all. I'm just a mama who loves Jesus and tries to spend time with him to impart to you. So let's know that up front. Also, I freely confess that I do not have time to do this passage justice. I need three hours, girls, and I have 30 minutes. So we're going to cram as much as we can into 30 minutes. So um, hold on to your hats. (laughs) Okay. Also, expectations. Because our Bible study tonight is going to be heady in doctrine, I'm going to ask for your brains. I know it's nighttime, and I know we're probably tired, but I need you to give me your brains, okay? But I promise to end with a word of encouragement. So hang in there. Are you with me? All right, Wednesday night. Let's do it. Lord, I pray, God, that you would make plain your word tonight, God, as we discuss such an important issue as your supremacy. Lord, I pray that your word would go forth in power, and Lord, that you would administer um, understanding and knowledge on this topic. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so some background. Colossae. Colossae was located in southern Anatolia, aka modern-day Turkey. The church was likely founded by a guy named Epiphras, and I need to confess that too. I have a hard time with his name Like, when I see his name, I have a mental block, and I want to say sassafras. (laughs) I do, every time. So if I slip up, I'm confessing that now. I'm not trying to. It's just in my brain as sassafras. So, Epiphras. He was called a faithful minister in chapter 1, verse 7. This epistle was written in approximately AD 20 to 62, and it was authored by the Holy Spirit, but it was penned by the Apostle Paul in Rome during his first imprisonment. What was the purpose? The purpose was to where am I? I lost my thought. Was to correct false teaching surrounding the validity and deity of Christ. In fact, Epiphras was concerned enough to travel one thousand miles to go seek counsel from Paul on this topic. Yeah, quite a journey, right? So, what false doctrine was trying to creep into the church? We're going to look at a few of them, and the first one was something called Gnosticism. Gnosticism really didn't take off for about another hundred years. So what we're looking at, what they were looking at or dealing with back in the day was very, a very preliminary form, a very like, infant stage, early stages of Gnosticism. So what is Gnosticism? It means knowledge. It originated in Greek philosophical thought. So Gnosis means knowledge, particularly having knowledge that was above and beyond secret and mysterious, okay? Like you had to be kind of a part of the club, right? Um, They felt that Jesus was not adequate for salvation. (coughs) 
that it was Jesus plus this special knowledge. In modern times, we might think of someone like David Koresh. Do you remember him from like the 90s in Waco, Texas? You know, or maybe Harold Camping with the end time doom and gloom kind of things. That might be kind of a somewhat of a rough parallel, but... um, But I also want us to think personally, although we're studying these um, false doctrines that are creeping in, I want us to think personally, what... What, how does this apply to me? Maybe I'm here and I don't struggle with Gnosticism per se, but am I mixing my faith with something else? Is it Jesus plus dot, dot, dot? Other religious beliefs, horoscopes, astrology, perhaps even tarot cards. These are all just other forms of worldly wisdom. Or on the other spectrum, do we think maybe we're extra special because we've gone to seminary or we can read Greek or we have a degree and there's alphabet soup after our last name, right? I haven't, no, I have not been to seminary by any chance. But, or let me bring it down even further. Do I believe I'm more righteous than others because I read my one-year Bible every day? Okay, I know I'm getting deep there, girls. Read away. I'm not discouraging you from reading the word of God. But what I am saying is that we have to be careful, okay? We need to be careful because knowledge can puff up. There can be a draw on pride that seeks out the hidden things instead of the person of Jesus. Listen, we're called to commune deeply with the Lord. That's what this whole relationship is about. But he's made plain his word. We don't have to go to extra biblical sources to know him or to discover his will. It's simply Jesus. Amen? So another problematic doctrine facing Colossae was legalism. We're a little more familiar with that one. Um, Legalism was rooted in Judaism or Old Testament laws. And it carries the idea that if you want the fullness of God, you have to do, do, do for spiritual growth. You had to follow special rules and ceremonies. An example of this would be found in chapter 2, verse 16, where Paul is admonishing the Colossians not to be judged by what they eat or drink, their religious festivals, their new moon celebrations, or the Sabbath day. So think personally here. Is it Jesus plus self-effort or works? If I just do X, Y, Z then I'll have the love and favor and acceptance of the Lord. Does that ring true at all for you today? The next false doctrine we find here is something called mysticism. Mysticism is the belief that direct knowledge of God, spiritual truth, or ultimate reality can be attained through subjective experience, such as intuition, insight, or visions. Paul speaks to this in chapter 2, verse 19, where he says that some were going into great detail about what they had seen, and that their unspiritual minds puff them up with idle notions. They have lost connection with the head, the head being Christ Jesus. So in modern times, we might you know, consider something like Mormonism or even Islam as getting their start with these visions. And connected to this idea was also the false worship of angels, as mentioned in Colossians 2.18, as mediators used to get closer to God. In modern times, we might think about Catholicism, and specifically speaking, the praying to Mary, the saints, the angels, as intermediaries. But the Bible warns against this. It plainly says there is one God and one. How many? 
one. One mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. So think personally. Is it Jesus plus experience? Or Jesus plus some other medium? Look, we can have an earnest desire to experience the Lord. (coughs) But do we focus on that instead of him? What happens when the candles fade and the chanting no longer inspires us? Did we fail? Did God fail us? Or did we fail to see God? Don't put God into experience. Forget the forms and the fashions. Humanistic ways fail to reach him. He reached down to us through his son. Right, ladies? Because we can't. We can't. And finally, the last doctrine that was kind of creeping in was something called asceticism. Asceticism. And that definition is the practice of severe. Severe. Sorry. That was a little dry. I've been hacking it up. Sorry, ladies. We're here. Go, Jesus. So the practice of severe self-discipline and the abstention or the abstaining of all forms of indulgence. So think of someone who's like denying themselves food, um, pleasure. They even go as far as like self-mutilization, etc. We see a glimpse of this offered in chapter 2, verse 21, where it says, Do not handle Do not taste, do not touch. Such regulations have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence, a.k.a. it doesn't work. Okay, right, it doesn't work. Think personally, Jesus plus self-denial. Do I feel more spiritual or more righteous when I deny myself dot, 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 fill in the blank? Or when I abstain from dot, dot, dot. Maybe a certain type of food or a certain type of activity. There is a difference between walking in wisdom in those areas and falling into the self-worship of the body, right? There's a control issue there. Or we don't eat at all, but we call it a fast instead of an eating disorder. When does restriction turn into obsession? And when does self-denial... When is self-denial just another form of idolatry disguised as spirituality? As 1 Corinthians 8.8 says, But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Righteousness is not found by what you do or do not eat, but only in the blood of Christ. So what a mess. No wonder why Epaphras, a.k.a. Sassafras, went to get counsel from Paul. I mean, right? That's a lot going on. So like the Colossians, when we don't trust in the sufficiency of Christ, we get ourselves into all kinds of trouble. So what was the result of Epaphras' visit? Paul writes the book of Colossians. That's why it's here. He issues one of, if not, the clearest descriptions on the supremacy of Christ in all of Scripture. Our passage today is the crux. It is the crown of Colossians. It is a central, theological, foundational doctrine of Christianity. It's black and white. It's not up for debate, right? Our passage isn't today merely just words on a page, ladies. They are more than a description, more than a definition, and even more than a defense to heresy. 
They are a declaration of Christ's superiority in all things. It's serious business. And we've got to get it right because there's just too much at stake. There's too much going on. So let's get into our text. We're going to start in chapter 1, verse 15, and read through 20. (coughs) I am reading out of the ESV version. So chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Paul mentions seven unique qualities that distinguish Christ with having absolute supremacy. I've listed them on your study guide for your reference. So number one, Christ is, number one, the image of God. Number two, the firstborn over all creation. Number three, creator of the universe. Number four, the head of the church. Number five, the firstborn from the dead. Number six, the fullness of God. And number seven, excuse me, the reconciler of all things. Now that's a mouthful, right? That's quite a list. So let's break it down a little bit. Let's start with verse 15. Speaking of Christ, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So to be the image of God means that Christ is literally in the econ, literally in the Greek, the econ or the icon. It's where we get our word statue from. It's the substance, the embodiment of God, the manifestation, the perfect likeness, the absolute accurate image of God. And according to Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He is not a lesser version of God. He is authentic. He is the real deal. He who has seen me, Jesus says, has seen the Father, John 14.9. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He, as Philippians 2, 6 tells us, is the very nature of God. So what this does not mean. We were created in the image of God, according to Genesis 1, 27. We share a semblance, a shade, a likeness. We're similar, but we're different. And like God, we were created with intellect and emotion and will. We think, we feel, we choose, but we're not God. We are not the complete, perfect image of God. We sin. He is holy. We are not holy apart from his blood. And neither do we possess his divine attributes. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-unchangeable, and everywhere. Can you do that? Me neither, because we're not divine, right? This brings us to point number one on our study guide. Jesus is is the image of God. We were created in the image of God. So your feeling is is and in. Do you see the difference between is and in? Yes. Question, why is this distinction so important? Because if we can't or won't come to terms with Christ's deity, (coughs) then we open ourselves up to all kinds of false doctrines and belief systems that can wreak havoc in our lives and our on our eternal destination. Case in point, those belonging to the New Age movement. 
right? They claim that they, they are God or that they can become God or they can become the Christ. So to give you a visual to demonstrate the importance of this point, I've brought you something from home. Now, some of you remember that I have a fetish for coats. I have one over there, a gray one. But if you don't remember, I do. Okay. So I have brought something from home. Do you know what this is? It's a belt from one of my coats. Why do you think I've brought a belt? Any guesses? It's pretty. I like that. I do like red. (laughs) So think Ephesians 6. Think the armor of God. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with the belt of truth. Side note. Never forget that the armor of God is a personal gift from God to you. So use it. Use it. So we must sift all things, all ideas, all beliefs through the lens of scripture, through the belt of truth, which is the word of God. So let's do that right now, okay? Can we be God, as some suggest? No. Before me, no God was formed, nor will there be one after me, Isaiah 43.10. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God, Isaiah 45.5. Be still and know that I am God, and I will be exalted among the nations. He is the I am, and he does not share his glory with another, right? Okay. So to summarize, Jesus is the exact image of the invisible God, fully possessing the nature of God, We do not. Jesus is God. We are not. Do you see how messed up things can get when we don't filter truth properly? Do you see how clear things become when the Holy Spirit illuminates the truth of Scripture? Do you see how rich this is? And we've only got through like half a verse, right? It's a lot. Let's return to verse 15 and read it again. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. Well, wow, Mer, you just said that Jesus is God, but here it says that he is the firstborn in all of creation. So how can Jesus be God if he was created? Good question. I'm glad you came to Bible study. In fact, this is the very passage that's used in third century Egypt to denounce the deity of Christ. They turn to Colossians chapter one. And you know what? Much hasn't changed since then. This is the same passage that Jehovah's Witnesses use today to downgrade the deity of Jesus. They say that Jesus is not God himself, but he is a God, lowercase a. Not the God, but a God. That God created Jesus, and that from Jesus, Jesus created all other things. So, we have a visual. I'm going to cue my sound, the sound ministry. They're going to put a visual on the screen for you in a second when they're ready. <coughs> What's the quote? Okay, this is an exact quote from the New World Translation, the Jehovah's Witness Bible. And as you can see, I'm not going to read it just for sake of time. But what I have done is I have highlighted where the word other is. They have inserted that word into their text, thus changing scripture, right? They have not, they've changed the scripture to fit their message. They have not denied Jesus, they've dethroned him. Okay, now you know. But you know what the Bible says, everything's going to bow 
every tongue is going to confess. So, was Jesus created as some suggest? Girl, no. Get your belt of truth out again. Okay, let's sift this idea through the word of God and see if it holds water. Let's read verses 16 through 18 for context, and then we'll double back to answer that question more, more fully. Verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. <coughs> Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent or most excellent. So if the idea here is to diminish Christ's deity to being that of a created being, then we would expect the original Greek language to support this idea. I mean, fair. That's fair, right? We would expect to find the Greek language bear that out. In fact, let's look at point number two in your study guide. The Greek word, and I'm not going to try to pronounce it, P-R-O-T-O-K-T-I-S-T-O-S. It's written there for you because I'm not even trying. The Greek word, that Greek word means first created. So your feeling is created. (coughs) If Jesus were a created being or created first, as some argued, then we would expect to find this word in the Greek language here in verse 15 and verse 18. But you know what? We don't find that word in that Greek. No, ma'am. No, we don't. We find a different one. Yes, we do. Turn once again to your study guide for point number three. The Greek word that's actually used in our text is P-R-O-T-O-T-O-K-O-S. And that means firstborn. Firstborn. B-O-R-N. Born. This is the Greek word used here in Colossians 1. Well, gosh, Merle, that sounds an awful like semantics. You're talking about first created versus firstborn. I don't really see much of a difference. Well, what does all this mean? It means that the Holy Spirit was highly selective in his choice of words. It means that Jesus was not created. It means he is the firstborn. Well, what does firstborn mean then? Well, we need to take into account both the language and the culture for which our study was written, which the scripture was written in. This brings us to point number four in your study guide. In biblical times, firstborn meant first in rank. First in rank. So rank is your fill-in. He is supreme. He has the preeminence over all things. So we're going to look at some biblical examples to kind of make that a little bit easier. Sound ministry is going to put Psalm 89.27 on the screen. (coughs) So in speaking of David, the Lord says, I will make him my firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth. David wasn't biologically born first, was he, ladies? No. In fact, he was the youngest of Jesse's seven sons. He was the last born. But David was first in rank. Another example is Exodus 4.22. God refers to Israel as my firstborn. Israel wasn't the first nation ever created. No. Where did Abraham come from? Ur of the Chaldeans. But Israel was first in rank, first in importance. And our last example is Revelation 1.5, where Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead. Jesus wasn't the first to be resurrected. Think about the widow's son in the Old Testament. Think about Lazarus in the New Testament. But Jesus is first in rank. 
So Jesus was not created. He is first. He is preeminent. He is God. So to recap our passage in Colossians, Jesus has absolute authority and supremacy over creation. That's heaven and earth. The visible and invisible. (coughs) All things material and all things immaterial. Angelic realms, thrones, dominions, rulers, authority. And keep in mind that the demons bow down to Jesus in the New Testament, right? Even they recognize his authority and they submit it to him. Jesus has authority over the church. Romans 8, 29, Jesus is called the firstborn from among the brethren. He is the head of all believers, the universal church. So if you are physically able, without too much trouble, could you stand up for a second? If it's trouble, don't worry about it because you can do this sitting down too. All right. Thank you for your participation. Okay. Ready? Raise your hand. It doesn't matter which one. Awesome. Okay. Raise your other hand. Okay. Take your two fingers. Poke yourself in the eye. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Okay. You can sit down. (laughs) I'm messing with you (laughs) because I can. (laughs) Okay. So why did we do that? Was that random? No. What we're illustrating in a very simplistic way is that the head tells the body what to do. Your head told your arm to raise its hand, right? (laughs) Right. The head tells the body what to do, and the body or the church responds. The church needs to respond to the head, Jesus Christ. So when we let scripture interpret scripture, it becomes clear that Christ is preeminent in everything. When we use that belt of truth accurately, we spare ourselves and others from falling away to doctrines of demons and other nonsense. The church will always be attacked by false doctrine. So stand guard, know your word, and don't give an inch. So let's turn to my favorite part of the passage and read verses 19 through 20. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell (coughs) and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So I promised you gals a little bit of doctrinal reprieve. So let's shift gears a little bit. Today's message isn't just some doctrinal teaching about the supremacy of Christ. It's about God. And it's about what he's done for us. So let's kind of pan back a little bit and kind of refocus on the why. Why did Jesus leave heaven and come to earth? Why, did, why was God pleased to have his fullness dwell in him? Why did Jesus consider it a joy set before him to endure the cross of Calvary? And why did he spill his blood to make peace with those who were his enemies and alienated from him? Why? Answer, for you. For you. For me. For love. For reconciliation. That's what verse 20 says. To reconcile to himself all things. Don't lose sight of the why. Don't lose sight of his heart. Doctrine always points back to his love, his heart, and his best. And tucked inside his supremacies is Christ's loving sovereignty over all things. This is point number five on your study guide. Sovereignty. S-O-V-E-R-E-I-G-N-T-Y. Because I can't spell it either. Every time I flunk. I got to go back to school. And you know what? (coughs) 
Maybe you're here today and you're not really struggling with his supremacy over the universe or angels, but maybe you struggle with whether he's big enough for you and your daily life. May I lovingly ask you in sincere humility as I ask myself, have you minimized him? Have you reduced him somehow? Have you dethroned him in any way? And are you doubting his sovereignty over all? He is sovereign over all things in your life. How many times did we read all things in our scripture? If you were to count, you would get seven. He's plainly telling you something. And in him, we live and move and we have our being. He holds all things together. He holds you. He holds you together. He holds that situation. He holds that person. He holds that fear. He holds that anxiety, that worry, that marriage, that job, that child. All of it. Let him carry you. Let him carry you. Let him be Lord. Carry me, Lord. He'll keep your lamp burning. I want to end our time with a word of encouragement. During that week of prayer and fasting we had, I was in such a place, and still am, but to a lesser degree. But at the time, I was in full meltdown mode. (laughs) Complete discouragement, no victory, straight up oppression. Have you been there before? Yeah. I managed to escape to my bedroom and I turned on some worship and the song that came on said, for the spirit of heaviness put on the garment of praise. And I opened my Bible and landed on 2 Chronicles 9.12. And it says, he gave her more than she had brought to him. And immediately my eyes watered because I knew the Lord was speaking to my heart. And he said, bring me all your problems, Mer. I have more for you. I have more for you than you could ever bring me. Bring to me. And you know what happened next, ladies? I thought of you. And I wondered what you were facing. What trial, what struggle, what temptation, what burden, what situation. And I prayed over you. And I said to the Lord on our behalf, show me how you bring more. Because I was desperate. And I still am. I need Jesus every second. Girl, please. I need him. And this is how he answered. He said, I bring beauty for ashes, Mer. I bring more. I bring gladness instead of mourning. I bring more. I bring praise instead of despair. I bring more. And I feel compelled to leave you his heart and his promise from Isaiah 61 7. Instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance. So they will inherit a double portion in their land. And everlasting joy will be theirs, even by faith, friend, believe. He always brings more. Bring it to him. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that you would work your word deep within our hearts, Lord. 
that you'd make the application. And God, we believe, Lord, you're sovereign over everything, even that situation. Nothing is impossible for you, Lord, nothing. Lord, we submit to you. We place you back on the throne. You are God, and you are high and lifted up, Lord. Blessed be your name. In Jesus' name, amen.